Hello and welcome to Tell Me About It, brought to you by NAM AIDS Map, Radioville and Public Health England. It's a podcast where people with HIV and an interest in HIV share our experiences. It's an opportunity for us to talk to people who may know a little less about HIV, celebrate progress and learn from each other. Our lives are varied and diverse. There's no one way to be HIV positive. Every episode, we'll hear from two people with different perspectives. They'll share what they know and how their lives may have been shaped by HIV. Today, we're hearing from Jonathan Blake and Rich Watkins and their experiences of being diagnosed almost 40 years apart. Rich is an actor, playwright, activist and educator. He's been living with HIV since July 2016. Following his diagnosis, Rich has become an active member within the HIV community, working with and volunteering for a range of HIV organisations and clinics. Rich is also the writer and star of a Disney parody musical, Happily Ever Pifter. Jonathan was diagnosed in October 1982 making him one of the first people to be diagnosed with HIV in the UK. He was there at the beginning of the epidemic and has seen how HIV care and treatment has evolved over the decades. Jonathan is also an actor and has appeared in a range of productions on screen and in theatre. Well, I just want to say what an honour and a privilege it is to be here with you, Jonathan. We are dear friends, but to be sharing a platform with you to even be considered to be in the lineup with you is just such a privilege. So uh, thank you for having me, Bakita, and also Jonathan. Oh, listen, bless you. Because I, I just, you know, this is so extraordinary. I, I can't believe that, that, you know, I'm still here. I mean, that's what is so extraordinary, is that, that I've had this privilege. And I mean, in a way, it is a privilege because, you know, there are so many people who in those early years are no longer with us. And so to be able to kind of have this opportunity to talk about the kind of sort of the journey of and the development around HIV is great. And it's wonderful to be doing it with Rich because, you know, I mean, you just have such kind of sort of joie de vivre. And, and I think that... that that is something which actually is what gets us through, isn't it? Ab I mean, absolutely. I mean, I remember some of the advice that you personally have given me is to enjoy life and find pleasure in doing things. And I mean, I could tell your anecdotes for you, Jonathan, but something that I learned from you, <laughs> something that I learned from you is, is to, to, to learn new skills and to, to enjoy life. I mean, I remember when you learned how to make trousers many years ago, and yeah. I remember you telling me that, story and off the back of that I thought well I'm, I want to get creative and then I wrote a show and you know I have always since my diagnosis for the last four years now tried to find the joy in things that I do um, and it's, this, it's something that I tried to translate to people that I worked with at the clinic at Bloomsbury Clinic where I used to work and at Terence Higgins Trust to try and find joy whether you're living with HIV or not whoever you are to find joy in life because otherwise what's you know what's the point in living it but I do agree with you that I think that something that helps build resilience is joyfulness and enjoyment and pleasure seeking well you know within reason <laughs> no 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 um, I, I mean not even within reason <laughs> yeah no you know forget that. it is a, it, it is about finding you know all the positive i mean 
I remember those, you know, those really early days. When I was diagnosed, um, it wasn't even called HIV. It was called another virus. It was called HTLV3. And I really don't know what they stand for. I think it's something like, oh, God, human immunodeficiency. Anyway, whatever it is, um, you know, that was it. And what had happened, let me give you the sort of the, the share the build up to it, just in terms that, that um, I had been sort of um, out of work as an actor uh, and very lucky sort of working at, at Joe Allen's in, uh, in Covent Garden, slinging hash, um, serving tables. I was um, going to say, when you say slinging hash. <laughs> yes, <laughs> hash never... browns, hash okay. browns, as opposed to... You didn't have a, didn't have a <laughs> no, side no, career. Um... <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> I know we say we're pleasure seekers, Jonathan. Uh... Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's one of those colloquial expressions that I picked up when I, when I lived for a short period in in the states in New York, uh, and uh, and that's what they used to call it when you were waiting tables, slinging ash. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, and I'd been sort of working there, and I began to sort of feel very unwell, and bit by bit, every single lymph node gland in my body swelled, and eventually I had to to leave there. And I remember making an appointment with my GP. I was living in the East End in Shadwell. And I made an appointment to go and see her. And by this time, I was walking like a gorilla. I couldn't put my arms by the side of me. Every lymph node in my groin was up. So it was just really painful. I was like bandy legs. And I walked in to her. And as I walked in, she got up and she told me to shake her hand. And as I shook her hand, she felt the lymph node in the crook of my elbow, which was really painful. I went, ah, what did you do that for? She said, that's the sailor's handshake. Whenever the sailors went into port, they would shake the hands of the women or the men that they were going with. And if that lymph node was up, it was a sign of syphilis. So she said, have you had a syphilis test recently? And I said, no, um, I've had syphilis, but no, I haven't. So she said, I suggest that you go to the special clinic and have that. And at that time, I used to go to a place called James Pringle House, which was part of the Middlesex Hospital, which no longer exists. But anyway, and I arrived there and the people were all over me. And they decided that they wanted to do a biopsy to 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 take out part of the of one of my sort of lymph nodes uh, to see what on earth, you know, what was uh, was infecting me. And in those days, they used to, if you were gay, if you were homosexual, they used to put you on side wards. And I remember being in this side ward and there was one other person with me in that side ward. And I suddenly realised Although he, I mean, he looked like he was on death's doorstep. But I suddenly realized that I knew him, that I had met this person when I was doing a tour um, in Norwich in 1976. I'd been working in Regent's Park and uh, we'd, we'd done Love's Labour's Lost and Othello. And we were touring Love's Labour's Lost and we were in Norwich. 
Anyway, they did the biopsy and I then had to stay there. So I was there for like two days and they came back after two days and they said, you have something called HTLV3. It is a virus. It is incurable. There is nothing that we can do for you. There will be palliative care. Basically, you have like six months to live. And then they let me go. And I was like, I've kind of, I suppose I was numb. You know, it's like I was 33 and suddenly my life was over even before it had started. And I went back to my flat and I kind of sort of closed down. And I remember wanting to meet people, but, you know, you've got this killer virus coursing through your veins. And I didn't want to infect anybody, but I wanted to be with people. So I would I would go to bars in the East End, but I would hang in the shadows, wanting to be with people, wanting to meet people, but actually sending out the vibes, don't come near me, I'm a modern day leper and 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 that's it. I mean it was it was this total confliction. And in the December of that year, I decided that this was it. I'd had enough and I was going to end it. I, I had because I'd lived in New York in 1974 for 10 months, I had good friends in the States. I'd been to San Francisco in 1981 to uh, a friend's to 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 be a, an usher in a, a friend's marriage, and um, I stayed with an ex-lover who was then living in San Francisco. So I was hearing stuff, even though you have to remember that there are no computers, there are no mobile phones, but one is getting information by pigeon, I assume. Well, almost. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's by phone calls, basically, mm. or 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 letters. But I mean, basically, it's like you know, landlines. And I suppose it wasn't wasn't that long ago, but it was before the days of Zoom. Absolutely. I mean, I basically was hearing horrendous stories that were coming out of uh, of San Francisco and out of New York of what was happening to sort of basically it seemed to be to young gay men and I thought I can't cope with this and so I decided I was going to to kill myself doing the sort of the Roman way I was going to run a hot bath you know drink some alcohol take some sort of sleepers and that was that and I got it all prepared and suddenly I heard the voice of my mother colder saying, Jonathan, you clear up your own mess. You don't leave it for other people to clear up. And that was that. I mean, you know, I was going to leave such a mess and I couldn't do it. So then you have to make a decision. Since mm. I couldn't kill myself, you've got to get on and live. But how do you do that? You know, when you've got this killer virus that's coursing through your veins. How did you do it? Basically, I was in a bar, The London Apprentice, and I picked up a copy of Capital Gay, and within Capital Gay, which is this, this new sheet... So, forgive me, Capital Gay. Capital Gay. That doesn't a, exist anymore, does it? No, no. But it was, it was, it was a, a new sheet that was distributed free to, uh, 
to to pubs and gay pubs and uh, and and bars. So it's a um, bit like boys mag boys magazine, but sounds a bit more yeah, eyebrow. but not glossy. <laughs> it was more more like pink paper. Okay. People know pink paper. So I mean, like a, like a newsletter. It's like, almost like a newsletter, but a little bigger. And in it, that, they now, have these they they have these small yeah. Let's not go there. They have these small um, little advertisements, and in it there was one that was saying. Gays for a nuclear-free future are running a coach, leaving gays the word on Marchmont Street Which at 11 a.m. Yes, at 11 a.m. on the 1st of April, 1983. And I thought, all right, that's going to be my re-entry into society. So I remember getting myself ready, girding my loins, leaving the flat in Shadwell, getting to Russell Square Tube, coming out, I can see the coach up on Marchmont Street. And I think, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> and I was about to turn on my heels and flee. And suddenly this voice says, hello, my name's Nigel, what's yours? I stopped, I, I turned round, and there was this young man wearing Crimson and ochre pantaloons, uh, green Wellington boots, this fair owl sweater, little singlet, and a mop of black curly hair. And that was Nigel Young. And we spent the whole day together. I went with him on the, the, the coach. I told him that I was HIV positive. I think it just, well, not HIV positive, but I had HTLV3. I had this, this killer bar. I think it just sort of fell off him. I don't know whether he heard me or he didn't, but it didn't seem to make any odds. He was introducing me to my friends, to his friends. There was sort of um, Noel Gregg of Gay Sweatshop. He was uh, on the coach who I did know, not well, but I knew because of, of, of being an actor. Um, and we had this amazing day. There was this stand together around Greenham Common, Burfield and Aldermaster, which were the two uh, uh, British nuclear establishments. And there must have been 100,000 people all going there to hold hands to, to, to form this human chain for 10 kilometres. And that was it. And it was amazing. And just... We spent the day and we just chatted and chatted and chatted, and that changed everything. Do you know? Do you know what, Jonathan? In your story, for me, there's one big similarity and then one big difference. And I'll start with the difference. The difference yeah. for me in my own particular journey, having only been diagnosed four years ago, I say only. It feels like I've been living with HIV for many years because it's just so part of me now. I feel so comfortable with it, and I mean, for better or worse, it's become part of my identity. I was literally at a party the other day. Uh, there were not more than six of us. Don't worry, it was a very small party. It was during the <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was before we went before we weren't allowed out of our houses again. So you know, it was yeah. all legal. And someone walked in and went, "Oh, it's HIV rich," and I was like, "Sure, okay." Um, yeah. And no one batted an eyelid. But the, 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 that's irrelevant. The fact, well, it's not irrelevant. It's a really no, lovely it's story not, because, because you I, wear it with you wear it with pride, and that's brilliant. I do wear it with pride. I don't know if I necessarily encourage people to walk into a party and go, "It's HIV rich." Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the big difference in the story, in your story, and, and and my story, I think, is is that that sounds like there was so much unknown for you 
that yeah. not only did you not know, but the clinicians didn't know. And then you were sent away from that first appointment with that handshake, totally alone with no information. And yeah. despite the shock of being diagnosed with HIV four years ago, I personally had a lot of information before my diagnosis because just generally as a young gay man in London in 2016, I knew certainly what it was and I knew a lot about medication and uh, treatment and transmission, etc. But certainly the person who gave me my diagnosis knew all the facts that there were available to them. Mm. They knew about PrEP that existed. They knew that uh, my medication would work. They knew that I couldn't pass it on. They, there was so much knowledge and information. I think despite my diagnosis being shocking and scaring and uh, confusing, I had knowledge and I had knowledge available to me. And I'm so lucky that I had that. Um, I feel like Jonathan, I should probably explain a bit what undetectable equals. Yeah, no, no, I think I was, exactly. I, I, I was, I was, I, I was going to say, let's explain let's exactly explain what that, that means. Because I, I, mean, really, I, I think it's, it is so important. It is. And really crucial. I think it's, well, for me, it's a liberation because it, what it means for anyone who doesn't know, and I think I'm Jonathan, I'm sure you know very well. Uh, I think you probably told me what it was once upon a time. Uh, but what it means is that if you take your medication, if someone living with HIV takes their medication routinely and their medication is effective, that they can get to a point where they have so little HIV in their blood that they cannot pass it on to anyone else through the most of the usual routes of transmission, namely through sex, through childbirth, through blood transfusion. So I can speak for myself, but I am undetectable, which means that my HIV is so little in my blood that I can have sex with whoever, however, wherever and whenever I want, except not during lockdown, um, and not pass on the virus. Jonathan, um, I, I believe, I don't want to speak for, your, for you, but I believe that you are undetectable also. I, I, I am undetectable, you know, I'm undetectable now. But to me, that was was like the most important message that has come out in, I would say, the past five years. And I remember sort of when I first heard about it. And um, I'm very fortunate because I live in, a, in a, a gay and lesbian community, which is part of a housing cooperative. Um, and so my neighbours all understand about sort of uh, about HIV and I'm very open with people about my status that wasn't always the case but but now it is but I remember sort of I think it was at uh, one of the conferences HIV conferences and I think it was in Paris and I'm not sure what the year but I think it was about five or six years ago so you know I'm not going to do the math but I was given a T-shirt by a neighbour from across the garden and the T-shirt had printed on it, undetectable equals untransmittable. And it was my favourite T-shirt. I just thought, this is so fantastic. And Mark gave it to me because he said, oh, this is too big for me, but I'm sure it'll fit you. Well, it fit like a glove. And I was so pleased to have it. But when I had heard about it, what it does to one's headspace is just phenomenal. Because that's one of the sort of, you know, the, the, the really difficult things. You know, like I said, I, I had this killer virus 
coursing through my veins and I didn't want to affect, infect anybody. So you kind of shut down. Sexually, I shut down for, for, for years because of this, this fear, this dread of passing on this virus. Mm. Yeah, for no, me, no. It, 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 it kind of comes down to power or imagined power, certainly. Um, when I was diagnosed, even though I knew that undetectable was a very uh, real possibility for me, I felt very powerless in how HIV was going to affect my life. I felt as though other people's reactions were beyond my control, which to an extent they always are. And that's just a life lesson. You know, I've, I've always been a control freak. I'm a Gemini from Hertfordshire. We like to control everything. I'm, I'm anally retentive and not in the good way. Um, but I, I thought that I could control everything. And in so many ways, you can't. But what undetectability and being undetectable gave me back was the power to control how I felt about this virus. It gave me back a sense of power. It gave me back uh, confidence in knowing that it doesn't affect anyone else. It's not about anyone else. And other people's reactions are entirely about them, not about what the virus actually is for me. Because the fact of the virus is that it doesn't affect anyone else except me. It doesn't have to affect anyone else except me. And so if you have a problem with it, that's on you. That's not on me. But me and my virus have done everything that we can do to be as palatable as we can be in this world. I take my medication. I'm as responsible as I can be. And then any other negativity, that's on you. But that gave me back a sense of power, even though it's, you know, it's not real power. It's imagined power. No one has any other power over me. No, you, no, no, because... but, 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 yeah, but, but, but that's, I mean, that's something which is so important, but it takes, you know, a huge amount to kind of to, to, to learn and get that confidence. And yeah. I think that, that, you know, even though we live in a, an age where there is medication or, you know, for those of us that live in the, the, the West and have access to it, because one has to remember that there are huge swathes of people who do not have that privilege. And that's of course. good fortune. But for those of us that do, it is still to get a sort of diagnosis of HIV must still be difficult for people. Because yeah. also what there is, is that there is this stigma. Now, you know, I've learned to, to cope and live with it. But nonetheless, it's not something that you can just go out and say, oh, by the way, you know, I'm no. HIV positive, because there is still a lot of misinformation around. And I think for me, one of the difficult issues was when in 1987, the Tory government actually, under Margaret Thatcher, brought in or created this Don't Die of Ignorance campaign. And it was a huge campaign. There was this horrendous tombstone that kind of crashed down. You had John Hurt, wonderful actor, but putting on his most terrifying voice. You know, don't die of ignorance. <laughs> and what it did was... It created fear. And I think that the root of a lot of stigma in this country is actually down to that advertisement. Because what it did, it didn't give you information. It just gave you this awful fear. 
and that there has been a, a hangover. Now, what was amazing at the at the time was that they also sort of pumped a huge amount of, of money, you know, I mean, millions of pounds into research and development for, for drug companies. And at the same time, what was amazing was that they put aside money for drop-in centres. So mm. there was this wonderful flagship organisation, the London Lighthouse. And the London Lighthouse had on its fifth floor a hospice where you know people who were in the terminal stages of uh, of their hiv and aids you know were looked after and that was something which was was just extraordinary and i remember you know i got a message from a friend of of mine who was living across the garden to tell me that a very dear friend of mine was in the london lighthouse and actually, sort of myself and Nigel were supposed to be going off for a holiday the next day. But I got on my bicycle and I pedaled from Brixton across to Labrook Grove because on Lancaster Road was where the, the, the London Lighthouse was. And I went to see my friend um, George. And I mean, it was it was amazing, but it was shattering. It was worrying, but it was like. Uh, the person who told me that he was in there had basically told me he's, he's, you know, on his way out. And I thought, I've got to go see him before I go off on holiday and then we'll deal with, with the consequences. I may say that George is still with us. I mean, he has had this most amazing journey. So, you know, that that's wonderful. But, you know, it was this places like that that were just so important. I think that our government does a lot more than was done in 1987 with that campaign. So, you know, we have to be grateful for the progresses that are made. Do you agree? Oh, no. That, I mean, there has been. I mean, there's been amazing progress. I mean, what was really interesting sort of, you know, for, for me and my journey is that I was back in the sort of the, the 80s uh, was an extraordinary time because, yes, you know, we had the miners' strike, and I was really fortunate, having met Nigel, who was very politically active. We joined Lesbian and Gay Men Support the Miners. And, of course, for me, that was wonderful because it was the most amazing displacement activity. Yeah. And I think displacement activity is really, really important. I because, agree. Yeah, because, you know, that's what gets one through, is finding ways not to be thinking about your virus, your diagnosis, what have you, but to keep yourself busy and occupied. Well, of course, you know, the miners' strike was the most extraordinary displacement activity and, and really sort of wonderful. But also, you know, what was concurrent with that was, of course, there was this decimation of young gay people. I mean, to me, it felt like it must have felt to people in the First World War in the trenches that, mm. that there were just people being cut down. I mean, well, I oh, suppose I mean it was wretched, wretched. The thing about displacement activities is that it gives you perspective outside of your own. And I, too, had a similar experience of that. I mean, first of all, I want to say that I am also immensely respect of the miners' strike in, in awe and 
in honor of it because it brought Jonathan Blake to the world many years later <laughs> via the film Pride, which uh, which is the reason that you're my hero, not just because oh, of Dominic sweet. West, but because of the real Jonathan Blake behind Dominic West. Um, but uh, yes, displacement activities change our perspective. Um, when I was diagnosed the following year, I went, no, nothing like the minor strike, but I went uh, on a tour around Australia and New Zealand, which, you know, a country's full of privilege. They weren't being wrecked by a minor strike. Um, but being on the other side of the world and being sat in nature made me realise how fortunate I was for the things that I do have. And whether it's, you know, going to spend time with people who are less fortunate than we are, or going through trouble and strife, like in a minor strike, or just getting out of your own bubble, and to go and spend time in another setting, certainly gives perspective to things. And that is one of the ways that actually I, I learned to do with my diagnosis mm. is by, I don't want to use any uh, any you know, naughty words, but getting my head out of my own butt, as it were, and, 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 and broadening my perspective, realizing how incredible and how beautiful this world is mm. and spending time in nature, spending time creating and spending time being grateful for what I do have rather than what I felt that I'd lost. Mm. That for me was a was was a big turning point, and it sounds like you had a similar experience, but just over in the the North Wales valleys. <laughs> well, yes, but I mean, not only in the North Wales valleys, because because also what there was at that time was Ken Livingstone, and Ken Livingstone, you know, is is often vilified, but Ken Livingstone uh, was the leader of the 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 Greater London Council, and the Greater London Council also had with it the Inner London Education Authority. Is this the trouser? And, this, this is the trouser yeah, story yeah, I told you. Yeah, yeah. I told and, you, dear listener, and, that you're going to get a good story. <laughs> and um, basically, Ken Livingstone decided that he had this policy that if you were out of work and unemployed, you could pay one pound and you could do any number of courses at any adult education place. So Morley College, uh, the city lit. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And my friend and partner, Nigel, was going to do a trouser making class with a friend of his, Barry Prothero. And I said, oh, can I come along? And he said, yeah, the more the merrier. So along we go. And uh, we arrive at, uh, at this adult education place called The Strand. And the um, class that was happening was in what would have been up on the fifth floor and would have been in, in the old chemistry laboratory. So you've got these big, tall tables. And there was this lovely elderly Jewish tailor called Harry. And the first thing that Harry said to us was, right, I want you to sit cross-legged on the table. Now, my father used to sell furniture. If you ever sat on a table, you were screamed at, get off the table, chairs for sitting on that table. So Harry, with one phrase, had given me permission. So I'm sitting there cross-legged and uh, doing the stitches. And I think, how many pairs of trousers do I need? Now, what I really need to do is I need to learn how to make a pattern. And somebody pipes up, oh, well, they do that at the London College of Fashion down in Shoreditch. Well, I thought, I've paid my pound. So I finished the If it was class. as easy as that these days, can you imagine these days? Oh, I paid God. my pound. I mean, I'm going to head off yes. to the London College of Fashion. Yes, exactly. Isn't it what, I mean, 27 grand totally, a year or something oh, these days? God, it's a totally different world. I mean, you know, so I go down there and I enrol. 
and I'm doing this pattern making class. And I'm loving it, really sort of taken to it. And one of the tutors says, oh, by the way, we do this three-year city and guilds diploma in tailoring. Might you be interested? Well, I thought, I'm never going to live that long. But yeah, why not? I mean, again, displacement activity. And, you know, I've really enjoyed the pattern making. So I started. And suddenly, three years has gone by. And I finished, but what on earth am I going to do? I mean, I knew I couldn't go and work down Savile Road because I'd kneecap and rather make clothes for them. But one of my other tutors said, look, I can't get you a job, but I could get you an introduction to English National Opera wardrobe. I thought, wow, I love opera. It is so overblown. I've worked in (laughs) theatre, so so, uh, really. (laughs) So that holds no illusions. So. I arrive with my portfolio and I'm told to go and wait in the men's workroom. Well, they're all busy sort of working, making the the costumes for whatever show was going on. And I'm feeling really nervous and I don't want to engage in conversation. So I'm sitting there sort of waiting. And I cast my eye on the notice boards that are around the room. And my eye hits upon this letter from St. Mary's Hospital Paddington, thanking everybody in the workroom for all the support they had given to this guy called uh, Peter, who was the men's cutter and he had just died from HIV AIDS. And I thought, I want to work here because when I get ill, they'll understand. I mean, I mean I'm not going to tell them. It's going to be all by osmosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it, was ju- it was just amazing. Suddenly I felt that I was in a partially safe space. And yes, I, I, I got the job. Important. Of course, you got the job. You, you look at you. Who wouldn't hire you? Well, <laughs> you, this, this is a podcast. No one can see you. Uh, listen oh, yeah. to you, I should say. Obviously, oh, I can right. see you via webcam, but uh, yeah. our listeners yeah. can't can't see you. Um, I've I found that a really important thing in in my in my last four years since my diagnosis, finding safe spaces, finding spaces where it feels okay to be HIV positive. I think there are obviously a lot more of them these days, one would hope, one would imagine, than there were 30 or 40 years ago. But I I worked almost exclusively in the HIV sector after my diagnosis, and then obviously my acting as well. Um, I remember my first acting job after my diagnosis. It was a panto down in Western Supermare. It was my first job uh, as an HIV positive actor. And I was. I think there was one other gay in the in the company, but it was very like um, young drama school graduates, all wonderful people, all still my friends, lovely, lovely people. And were you and they, able to share it? I didn't feel like I was. You know, I Everyone? really didn't feel like it was something that I was able to say. This was again only three or four months after my diagnosis. Which however, is huge. it was and it was early days. Yeah. yeah. Um, however, while I was there, it was December the first. It was. Uh, National AIDS Week, National AIDS Day. And I wore a red ribbon on December the 1st. Uh, and someone asked me why I was wearing my red ribbon. And I said, oh, it's it's National AIDS Day. And no, World, AIDS, World, World AIDS, AIDS Day. What's sorry, wrong with me? Sorry, I've been out sorry. of the sector for too long. Honestly, no, no, I, well, no. anyway. And I was wearing my red ribbon and someone asked me what I was. And I'm sure that year I did say it was World AIDS Day. And uh, he said, oh, tell me more about that. And I said, well, it's, you know, it's uh, for people living with HIV or for people who have been living with or died from AIDS around the world. And it's a day of remembrance and also a day of kind of celebration of how far we've come. 
Now, he was my roommate and we got back to our room that night and he just turned over and said, you know quite a lot about that. Have you got HIV? And I hadn't been asked outright by someone uh, up to that point because it's not really something you walk down the street and ask someone, is it? (laughs) It's not not really something that you would assume of someone or that you would bring up in conversation. But, I mean, he was a very bold, very brave actor and I don't think he saw anything wrong with asking the question. And I was outright asked. And I'd said to myself, I would never lie about it. I would maybe Mm. not open myself totally to the truth, but I wouldn't outright lie. And so I said, yeah, I have. And that was the first time in memory, I think that was the first time that I admitted it to someone that I hadn't been willing to tell or wanted to tell. And he was fine. But the point of that story was, I didn't tell anyone else in the cast. It It was all quite new territory for me. And it was my first Christmas with HIV. It was my first World AIDS Day with HIV. Um, But what went from feeling like an unsafe space of living with HIV became a relatively safe space. I wouldn't say that I felt confident in walking in the next day, showing everyone my medication and popping my pills in front of them every day. But I felt supported by one person. And I'll never never forget him. And Matthew Matthew Pennington, if you're listening, you're in my heart. Um, But... I still have to find safe spaces for me. I am very public about it. It's all over the internet, as it is with you, my dear Jonathan. But mm. I will still try and gauge whether I feel safe in this space talking about it. I've just got a job working in a primary school this year, and I think it's it's totally legal for me to have that job, but I haven't actively said to anyone that I'm working with that I'm living with HIV. Mm. Um, and I've asked myself why. I, that's just that's something that has come up in my mind as you were talking. How do you feel about all that? Well, I, you know, I think that, that, that these things are, are really difficult. I do think that, that safe spaces are something that, 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 that are so, so important and to, to find them. Mm. I mean, I've been really fortunate in terms that, that um, I volunteered at, well, uh, my health gave out in 1996. So I had been working at English National Opera from about 1989 through until 1996. Now, in 1989, my CD4 count, um, and uh, your CD4 count is is the, the, the count that tells you how strong your immune system is. Initially, what they were saying was that when it hit 350, um, you should start taking the medication. But when it hits 200, that was considered to be an AIDS diagnosis. And I suddenly freaked because I had suddenly got this AIDS diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was at the uh, at Mortimer Market. We had been moved when the, the, the Middlesex Hospital closed down. We had been moved to... Um, Mortimer Market. And prior to that, there had been the situation um, where there was no medication apart from they wanted to trial something called AZT. AZT, it turned out, was a failed chemotherapy drug, but we didn't know that at that particular time. Um, And I was asked if I would join a cohort and they explained that that you know your cohort is um, a group of of people who come in to do this trial, and what they do is they cut it down the middle, and so one section get 
the drug and the other section get the placebo. So I said to them, all right, well, if that's the case, are you going to balance people up so that someone who's got like a similar build or metabolism to me, you know, will be paired up and then, you know, either they will get the pill and I'll get the placebo or vice versa. And they went, oh, no, that's far too complicated. And I just saw red. And I thought, this is crazy. So I said, all right. I said, now, if you could take me and you could give one half of me the pill and one half the placebo. I mean, no, this was ridiculous, but I was just getting belligerent. I was so angry. I was just, I couldn't believe it. They seem so stupid. And you're a dreamer so said, and a visionary. You're a dreamer and a visionary. Well, I don't know about that, but I, so I said, <laughs> give one half of me the pill and the other half placebo, and we'll see which side does best. And that, I think, is a trial. But if you can't be bothered to do it, I can't be bothered to do your trial. And that <laughs> is the reason that I am still here, because virtually everybody who was on that thing taking – and at that point, it was three grams a day. So you were getting a gram in the morning, a gram in the afternoon, and a gram at night. I mean, nowadays, when they use AZT and it's being phased out, it's 1.25 milligrams. Gosh. I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've heard and read and been told so many stories about that time and those trials and then the Concord mm. trial. And I, I'm just so grateful for anyone who for everyone who was alive at that time to live through that fear to live through that unknown to live through all of the and just... and to be and to be the guinea pigs and because to, yes you know they were we were the guinea pigs you know but so I, I, you, I i mean yeah i took I mean, part in a, in a clinical trial after my diagnosis and it felt important but i've got to say nothing compared to the the risks and the gambles and the the loss that was experienced by by that by your generation i mean it's i mean you know it, those things are really difficult because there was nothing so you know we all grasped at whatever yeah um, for me it was it was one too much but so suddenly i get this aids diagnosis and i don't feel safe at mortimer market so I leave and I think, where on earth am I going to go to? And I remember hearing about the Kobler Clinic. You know, this was at the Chelsea and Westminster. It was a kind of sort of, you know, supposed to be one of the best. So I arrived there and uh, I remember they were wonderful in terms of helping sort out my benefits and, and, and issues like that. But I arrived with um, a young Dr. Mark Nelson and he wanted to put me on the medication. And I was still so angry about what had happened with the AZT and the Concord trial that I said, but um, can I just have some time to think about it? And I remember sort of fleeing there. And luckily, we had these amazing places. So I, we used to go, Nigel and I used to go to a place called The Landmark. The Landmark was one of these drop-in centres, um, which is on Tulse Hill, that was sort of, you know, a really wonderful organization where you could get information, you got support, you got wonderful hot meals. So sort of one of the things was that that people were 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 losing fat. They were getting this sort of this Belson look. 
and it wasn't really understood what it was. So people were sort of, you know, thinking, as long as we have lots of food and you build up, that will all stop. I mean, actually, what this this look was was that that some of the medications were stripping out your fat, so you got hypo, either lipodystrophy, which was where the sort of the, the fat just went out from uh, from your underneath your skin um, and on your arms uh, and legs and what have you, or you got lipoatrophy where it suddenly developed, you used to develop great humps, dowager humps, they were considered sort of a lump at the back of your neck, or you get sort of great stomachs and what have you. And, you know, that was the side effect of, of, of the various sort of medications. Anyway, uh, so there were these, this marvellous drop-in centre, and there were many, you know, so there was sort of, uh, there was the landmark, there was Body Positive, which had a whole number of, of, of satellites. Um, and but just big, shout out, big shout out to all the organisations that still exist today, because, you know, so yeah. many of them have gone, oh, but there are still some amazing... The Metro yeah. Centre and Sahir House up in, uh, in Liverpool yeah. that are amazing. I mean, just, and George House Trust in Manchester. Yeah. I mean, just really, really wonderful places. So anyway, I went there, and, and as they say, Nadja and I would go there, and we went there for sort of for uh, a lunch. And I said, I desperately need to find uh, a new HIV consultant, and I don't know where to go. And somebody said, oh, I've got a marvellous person at King's College Hospital. Now, King's College Hospital, I live in Brixton. It's down the road and round the corner from where mm. I live. I'm travelling halfway across London to get to, to Chelsea Westminster. So I make an appointment and I go and see him. And he was wonderful. I told him my story and he said, right. He said, okay, what we will do is you keep getting um, herpes and shingles. I had just, you know, basically uh, been medically retired because I got shingles internally on my phrenic nerve when I was working at English National Opera. But he said, um, We'll put you on acyclovir, which is uh, a medication for shingles and herpes. And also, we'll try you out on a drug called septrin. Septrin was an inexpensive antibiotic, but if you could tolerate it, and a lot of people couldn't tolerate it, if you could tolerate it, that would um, guard you against PCP. PCP was pneumocystic pneumonia, and it was sort of one of the sort of really, um, well, it was one of the opportunistic infections that, that was killing people. Mm. Um, and so he started me on that. And basically, that's what I stayed on to until 1996, when my health gave out. And at that point, we got the meds. HIV consultant, we got the meds, and my HIV consultant said, you know, you're going to have to bite the bullet mm. and start taking them. And I did. But by that point, and they weren't killing people. They were saving people's lives. They were beginning to. Beginning I mean, to. It, was still, it was still very early. So my, yeah. first, my first round of medication was, was, was great. It was, it was something called DDI, D4T, and something else which I don't remember what it was. And it was um, amazing. I mean... It took four weeks to hit in, but when it hit in, it was like 
I was like Lazarus raised from the dead. Born again. Really born again. I mean, I had got so much energy that I woke up the morning of the fourth week and I laid a patio outside my bedroom <laughs> which still I mean, exists and I've ne- which still exists but I've yeah. never done anything like that before I mean well, it was just phenomenal I'm sure I can speak on behalf of the whole community everyone involved in this podcast and the whole of the great British public who've seen the film Pride when I say thank goodness you're still here um <laughs> I I remember when you were talking about your your first diagnosis I said there was one big similarity and one big difference. I think I mentioned the difference which was the amount of unknown the lack of knowledge the lack of information. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get onto the similarity and if I may just before we end the big similarity mm-hmm. that I feel in our stories is the importance of people. Because your story really hits its high note on the, at that April the 1st when you met Nigel. Mm-hmm. And I remember in my journey, well, over the, my last four years, it's only when I felt supported by, cared for and looked after, or indeed guided by, mentored by people such as yourself, that I have felt that I'm making great steps in my journey, in my, I don't know, processing of my diagnosis or in my mm-hmm. development, my my evolution, my whatever you want to call it. And I think particularly at the moment when many of us are people starved, by not being able to go into other people's houses or see people. And I, you know, we were going to do this in the same living room today, Jonathan, but technically yeah, that would, yeah. they would have been highly illegal. So we'll just have to wait until we can go to the park to see each other. Um, but I, I really feel like our HIV community is at its best when we are a community, when we celebrate each other, when we look after each other and when we support each other. And I know that I wouldn't be as proud a person living with HIV if it weren't for other people. And I just want to thank you for being the person that you are. Because without you, I don't think I would be doing what I'm oh. doing today. I probably, I probably would have survived, but I wouldn't be doing what I'm Bless doing today. So I'm just so glad that I know you. And thank you to all the people that have invited us here today. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, I think that, that's that's brilliant. And, and, you know, we are so lucky that there are organisations around that still are, are there to support us. You know, mm. places like sort of, you know, the National AIDS Manual that's going to give information, the National AIDS Trust. So yeah. there are places where people can get information. Yeah. And long or, or like soon come the day when we can actually go to places and be together again. But I, yeah, yeah. we can do it via, 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 well, this isn't via Zoom, but we'll give Zoom a free plug. We can do it via Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same. It's, it's not, not the same. same. It we on, it's not Zoom. <laughs> yeah. It's not oh, the same. Thank you so thank much. You. Wow. Wow, hearing the different personal journeys was such an eye-opener and I learned a lot and it made me feel incredibly grateful to have started medication when I did. So thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, Rich. And thanks to all of you who have been listening. Please rate, review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the topics that Jonathan and Rich spoke about, email info at nam.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at AIDSMAP.